Our text today is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. And so let us hear together the Word of God. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. May God's eternal word have its purposeful impact on our hearts. Father, we pray that you will come now, minister to us, reveal uh, the beauty of Christ and his sufficiency for everything we've ever trusted him for and everything we'll walk into in life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we uh, come to a new series that will be... uh, one chapter from one of the greatest books in the Bible. Along with the epistle to the Romans, the the letter to the Hebrews is considered the second most theologically deep and meaningful book in the Bible. It has been precious to believers of all generations. We're going to take one chapter in it that I've entitled Faith Stories, The Lives and Lessons of Hebrews 11. If you take a look at this chapter, uh, today, by the way, is introductory. We're going to go and give you a sweep of the whole book, and we're going to help you understand the place that chapter 11 holds in the book and the great objective of chapter 11, and then next week we'll begin our verse-by-verse study. And as we look at this book, and particularly from this chapter, we'll look outward. If you just look at the chapter itself, I've entitled this Faith Stories, The Lives and Lessons of Hebrews 11, because that is what composes the entire chapter. There are life stories in this chapter. It's often called the Hall of Faith for a reason. It contains the great stories of men and women of the, of the Old Testament era who walked by faith. And in fact, if you take a look at the entire chapter and you just follow the phrase, the two-word phrase, by faith, in my version, I found it 18 different times in 40 verses. And so, by faith, how to live by faith, the greatness of it, the sufficiency of it, is obviously the theme of the chapter. And you're going to find us going through many different lives. It begins with Abel's testimony of faith, the second son of Adam and Eve. So we go back to the beginning of humanity's battle to trust God. And Abel was the first man who fought that battle successfully but paid for it with his life. We'll begin with his story in a few weeks and then we'll go all the way to the end and uh, the the, the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 sweeps all the way through the prophets. And so in in a sense we go from Abel in the beginning to Malachi, the last Old Testament prophet, who also gave his life for his testimony and lived by faith. So it's going to be an exciting study of all of these life stories. We're going to take a look at the biographies of these men and women. We're going to take a look at the Old Testament light that gets shed on Hebrews 11. It's going to be great. I'm looking forward to it. Also in this chapter, however, are lessons about faith. And by the way, this morning, I want you to get your copy of the scriptures ready, either printed or digital. I think we'll capture most of the verses on the screen, but we're going to go through a lot of different verses in the book of Hebrews to give you an understanding of this. 
In Hebrews chapter 11, there are at least three lessons about faith that we're also going to learn, hence the lives and lessons of Hebrews 11. One of the first is in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 to 3, which I just read in your hearing. And that's really one of the greatest definitions in the scriptures of what faith is. It's the essence of faith defined more succinctly here than just about anywhere else you'll find it. And that is going to be something that we'll go through as we begin, and it'll help us to understand faith for what it is. Also, later on, when we get to verse 6, there's another lesson in faith in the chapter. In the midst of all of these life stories with Abel and Enoch and the others, in, in, in this narrative, you're going to find these lessons all of a sudden inserted. Verse 6 is one of them, and without faith, it is impossible to please him, to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is where we're going to learn how to, uh, to live or walk by faith. It's the only way we can truly please God. And it's the only thing that will be on the reward table when we get to heaven. We'll be rewarded not by what we did in our own strength, but what we did by faith. Not what we did in the flesh, but what we did by the power of the Holy Spirit as we stepped out in faith in big things and small things. That will be how we're rewarded. Now, I want to be rewarded a ton in heaven. I don't know about you. Really? You don't want... This is amazing. I'll take all your rewards then. Because you get to keep them forever. They never get old and they always get better. I'm going for it. There you go. Now you're listening to me. So if I'm going to be rewarded by how I learned to live by faith, I certainly want to know all that I need to know about how to please him by faith. And so understanding faith for what it is, verses 1 to 3, living by faith day to day, verse 6. And then finally, I'm going to face, unless the Lord comes for me in the rapture, I'm perhaps going to face physical death. And I need to know how to end my life in faith, and that's verse 13. Another lesson we'll learn. These all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Just to give it away a little bit, one of the greatest secrets of faith is not what you get here, it's what's coming there. And that will empower you to live with anything by faith. The greatest part of the life of faith is what is yet to come in heaven. And that verse kicks off that whole theme throughout the remainder of the chapter. So understanding faith for what it is, learning how to live, live by it day to day, and if I need to, learning how to die by it, and what it all means for eternity. So it's a great book, as you can see. But I was asked uh, earlier this week, why is, is chapter 11 especially relevant? And why am I just doing chapter 11? Well, I want to take a shorter series. You know, you know me, if we did Hebrews, we'd be here until the Lord comes back. But we are going to do this remarkable chapter because the challenges of the people who received this letter reflect the challenges that we face, particularly in this season. It's, it reflects the challenges that all believers walk in through every time. But in this season, some of our challenges are rising and some of our challenges reflect the ones that the recipients of this letter lived with. And so there's a tremendous amount of transfer of knowledge here. We can learn a lot. So let me give you today a broad introduction to the letter and then we'll, we'll begin to get into the chapter uh, verse by verse next Sunday. 
So I'm going to do it by talking about three things. The first is the struggling people to whom this letter was written. Part of Bible interpretation is understanding the context, not just of the sweep of the book or the chapter, but the people to whom the, the, this text was written to. Different Bible books written to different people in different hours with different purposes. And these were struggling people. So let me give you some background on the whole book and on the people in terms of what we know. Now, we don't know a lot about the background of this epistle. It's shrouded in mystery. The church has always agreed it belongs in the New Testament. But as to the, the author and the time it was written, we really can't be sure. It's one of, the, one of two New Testament epistles that isn't author identified. The other one is 1 John. But we know by the basis of 1 John that John must have written it. And so, this is similar. There's no author listed in Hebrews 1.1. It doesn't say from so-and-so to the beloved Jewish Christians scattered throughout Galatia or wherever. It doesn't really tell us who wrote it. And so, there have been debates all the way through church history as to who really wrote the, the book of Hebrews. And we just don't know. As the great church scholar Origen said when this debate all started around 200 AD, he says, only God knows. And I'll take his word for it. Some people have suggested the Apostle Paul wrote this epistle. Others have suggested it was Barnabas, his beloved partner in ministry, who wrote it. Some believe that Apollos, the gifted teacher who moved throughout uh, the region in these days and years, may have written it. But we just don't know. But one thing we do know, as many commentators have said over the years, the Holy Spirit for sure wrote it. Because 1 Peter 1.21 says that all scripture is inspired by God, that's 2 Timothy. But Peter says all scripture was written by men moved by the Holy Spirit. So God will be speaking to us in these days ahead. We also know, don't know the time that this was written. We, we believe it was written before 70 AD. Why? Because Hebrews refers many different places to the temple sacrifices in Jerusalem. So these readers were living in a time when the temple still stood and the priesthood still existed in Israel and sacrifices were being made on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. We all know that came to a halt in AD 70 when Titus, the great Roman general, swept into Israel and destroyed the temple. So this had to have been written before AD 70. Most people believe it was written in the late 60s, A.D. 65 to A.D. 69. So we don't know a lot about it, but that's what I can tell you we surmise. We do know a little bit more about the people who got this letter, however. They were probably a group of believers or maybe a single church who were Jewish Christians, very important. They were not Christians who had come out of the paganism of Rome and all the polytheism and, and the, the secularism that that was, they had come from a very serious commitment to, to Judaism. They'd been evangelized by the apostles somewhere, somehow. And they had come to believe that Jesus, Yeshua, was the Messiah of Israel, the long-awaited Savior, and they'd placed their faith in Christ as their Messiah. Now, we don't know if it was a specific church this was sent to, or my opinion is that it was sent around to many different gatherings of Jewish Christians in the region. We don't know if it was in Rome, probably not in my opinion, but it could have been. 
Greece, that, that area where Paul had evangelized, Macedonia. They could have even been in Israel, outside of Jerusalem, but in parts of Judea where they might have been close to Jerusalem. We don't know where they were, but they were Jewish Christians. It's clear throughout the book. He talks to them as Jews. He appeals to their Old Testament knowledge. I think there's something like 80 different Old Testament allusions or references. So they are Jewish believers, but they've come to Jesus Christ. We also know that they were clearly suffering for their new faith. Now I want you to work, walk through some scriptures with me. Go to Hebrews chapter 10, just the chapter that, that of course sets up our, our chapter. In verses 24 and 25, we can see that these believers were suffering such persecution that they were tempted to abandon the believers altogether, to go underground and not even acknowledge their Christian life. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. He was calling these frightened, disobedient Christians not to go underground with their faith, but to be open about it and encourage one another. The whole body needs people. And all the more as you see the day drawing nearer. So there was fear in the flock. And some people were abandoning the, the visible testimony of their faith. Go down to verses 32 and 34 of chapter 10. He says, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, when the gospel came to you and you came to believe in Yeshua, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. The Christian life had always been hard for these Jewish believers sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. What is that all about? The Jewish believers, once they embraced Christ, were expelled from their synagogues. And Jesus predicted that would happen in the Gospel of Luke, didn't he? He says, they're going to put you out of the synagogues. They may beat you and flog you in discipline. They will reject you. So very likely, their jobs were taken because they couldn't operate in the Jewish economy. They were as dead to the Jewish people as the saying goes today. So they suffered a lot. They were exposed to reproach and affliction, the affliction of no economic future, their professional titles taken away. And they were also, at times, partners with people, verse 34, who had been put in prison. Some of these Jewish believers had been put in prison. So you can see persecution was escalating from the personal to the civil to the physical but they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property, having their furniture put out in the street and their houses taken because they were no longer welcome in the Jewish community since, that, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Heaven was coming and he is worth it. But we know they were suffering. This matches, by the way, Roman history. The, the historians tell us that in A.D. 49, so about 15 years before this all happened, the Jewish Christians were expelled from the city of Rome because there was such an uproar about their new faith. So that had reverberated through the Roman Empire. So there was Roman persecution. Also, in A.D. 64, just a few years before this epistle was written, Rome burned. And you remember the emperor Nero looked for a scapegoat to blame it on, and he chose the Christians, the followers of Crestus in Latin. And so persecution started to rise, and it was getting to the point where Christians were starting to face death. That's why we see in chapter 12 and verse 4, he says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. But the writer of Hebrews seems to suggest, I know it's coming. 
Persecution is escalating, and one day you may indeed have to give your life for Christ. So they were suffering for their new faith. The Romans were persecuting them and ratcheting it up level by level. But also they had the extra level of persecution from the Jews. And the Jews made their life particularly miserable. And this is why many of these Jewish Christians, new believers, were being tempted to go back under Judaism. To go back and start attending and asking for permission to go back to the synagogue again. For minimizing or putting in the background their belief in Christ as Messiah. Because if they did that, their life would be easier. If they started being Jewish again, they wouldn't suffer from the Jews as much. And so Paul, pardon me, the, the writer of this epistle writes to them and says, Listen, don't, don't fall away like that. Don't drift away. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. What was that? The gospel, the news that you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, lest we drift away from it. You see, they were being tempted to drift away because the price was so high. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Persevere for Christ. Don't give in to the temptation to fail in your faith. Chapter 10, verse 23. Take a look at that. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So that translate, translates to me that these believers were starting to waver in their faith. And they didn't want to confess Jesus as they had before. Because every time a Jew heard him confess Jesus, he was after him. I can understand it. It's a human temptation. Verse 35 sums it up. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. And so this is all written to help them understand that they need to hold hard to Jesus Christ. That's the human theme behind this great theological letter. Now, if all that is true, it's easy to understand then the two dimensions of why the author wrote what he did. He writes them a letter to tell them two big ideas or things. Number one, Jesus is better than anything you've ever left behind in Judaism or anything else in your old life. He's better than anything you might want to go back to. And number two, he's enough by faith to take you through anything you might suffer for him. Keep those two phrases in mind and they interpret the purpose of the whole letter. So let me break them both down for you. Here, and I'll give you the second point, which breaks down the idea that Jesus is better than anything. It's what I would call the strategic point to the whole letter. In other words, there's a lot of theology about Jesus built into this letter. His supremacy over all things. Greater than the angels. Greater than the Old Testament prophets. Greater than the Old Testament priests. Greater than the Old Testament promises. Jesus is greater and better than anything Judaism ever had to offer. And that's the theological point behind the whole letter, the strategic point. Let me put it in a phrase. He, he gave them some theological teaching to show them that the real Jesus they know is better than the old religion they left behind. In Judaism, they had an old religion based on law. 
and based on hoping you would remain accepted to God. Now in Christ they had a new relationship. Is there a difference, as you've heard 10,000 times from this pulpit, between religion and relationship? Yes, there is. And there's an eternal difference. You can be religious and end up lost for all eternity. It doesn't matter what you practice. It matters who you know. And he said, listen, you've come to know Christ. And everything that he is is better than the old religion that you left. You can't go back to Judaism because Christ is better. In fact, if you want to study the word better in this Hebrew epistle... Every time you find it, you'll see how Jesus is better than what they left behind. I'll just give you three examples. Hebrews teaches us that Jesus was better than all the Old Testament prophets and teachers that they had learned about in their Jewish life. Hebrews chapter 1, please. Verses 1 to 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, in all the Old Testament days, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, like Moses, like Elijah, like Isaiah. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is greater than any prophet that ever came out of the Old Testament. They talked about him. Jesus is Almighty God who arrived on the planet in human flesh and he spoke as God himself. And so everything that Jesus taught and everything he showed us, remember John 1 says that Jesus came to show us, to manifest to us what the invisible God is like in his character, in his goodness. There's no comparison to Jesus Christ. So he was saying, listen, the prophets had a role for a time. The Old Testament had its role. But in these last days, we actually know the author of the book. Nothing replaces him. He's greater than all the other prophets. They spoke as men about God. He spoke as God to men. And he still does that today. How? By the Holy Spirit's presence through the written word of God, doesn't he? Believe it or not, beloved, he is speaking right now. To you, in the inner man, to your new mind in Christ, through the written word of God, brought by the Holy Spirit to you. Don't set that aside. The second thing I notice is he's better than all the priests. He's better than the Old Testament priestly system with all the sacrifices and the offerings. Chapter 4, verse 14 tells us this. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. You can't go back to Judaism because those were human priests in human times, and they were humans themselves. That whole priestly system, the one you want to go back to in Jerusalem where they're still making sacrifices, it has no effect now and no importance. That was for the Old Testament era before Jesus came to that cross. Before Jesus came to that cross, human priests shed the blood of animals to temporarily cover sin, but it did not take it away and deal with it eternally. That's why when Jesus arrived, John the Baptist pointed to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who what? Takes away sin. 
He takes away it all. He took it on himself, and he took it out of our relationship with God. There's no longer no barrier between you and God. So the Old Testament Jewish system could only cover sin. Jesus, your new Messiah, came to take sin and make it disappear before God. That's how he's better. Why would you ever go back from that? He reasons in the, in the epistle. And then thirdly, I saw that he also says Jesus is a greater promise. This is chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. Give us an idea. What's this? It's called a promise or a covenant. Verse 6, but as it is, this is chapter 8, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. There were two covenants. The old covenant was the covenant of the law. In the Old Testament era, God gave it to Israel so that they could come close to him. They came by obeying all the commandments he laid out to them as well as they could, and they came with sacrifices to cover all the, th the times when they didn't. It was keeping the law and hoping that you would be acceptable to God. But it was never designed to be fully effective. It was designed to show people their sin and to point to a Lamb of God who was coming who would be far more effective. He would bring a new covenant. The word covenant, by the way, means agreement. God agreed with the nation of Israel to cover their sins for, for a time as the sacrifices were made and as they lived to keep the law. But somebody needed to come who would take it all away. And he would bring the new covenant. And verse 6 says, he brings a covenant that is much more excellent than the old. And so, that's our Christianity. They lived under law and Judaism. We now live under the covenant of grace, don't we? And it's far superior. So Jesus Christ, he says, is superior to everything. Why would you ever go back to an old religion that wasn't superior? See, the epistle to the Hebrews is a study in contrast between the imperfect and incomplete provisions of the old covenant given under Moses and the infinitely better provisions of the new covenant offered by a perfect high priest, God's only son, and the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So this is why he writes the theology woven through these chapters. Because ultimately, allegiance to Jesus is a truth decision. Hear me. It's not a decision you make because he remains comfortable to live with. It's not a decision you make because it's easy to do. It's not a decision you make because he continues to bless your life. It's a decision you keep with because of what you believe. You came to Christ because the truth of God penetrated your soul and it revealed to you your sin and his magnificence as a savior. And you suffer for him because you believe that. When you stop following him, you deny the truth. And he's saying, how could you deny the greatest truth in the world and go back to the ashes of the past? You know what? I'm confident that if you know Jesus, he's better than anything you ever left and he's better than anything I ever left if you're honest. He may not be easier than anything I ever left, but he's better. And I'll follow him. And I'll suffer for him. And I'll walk with him in my, in my halting steps, in my humble way, with my multitude of mistakes and the things I don't even see that I need to bring under line with him. But I'll keep going with him because he went all the way for me. And that's why we follow him. Don't be deceived into ever going back because there's nothing there. Well, 
Not only is Jesus better, he writes throughout this epistle, but he also says Jesus is enough. Because they were tempted not only to go back, but to give up. And that's where chapter 11 comes in. Because chapter 11 is proof that all kinds of people in all kinds of ages have found that Jesus is enough. That God is sufficient by faith to take you through whatever he leads you to. That's the last principle of, or the last point in this covering of the book. It's really the supreme principle that would guide them through all that they were facing. The supreme principle that would guide them through it all. I'll put it in a phrase. Jesus is enough to face anything if you learn to live by faith. He's enough to face anything if you learn to live by faith. You see, they were tempted to fall away, to back away, to go and become invisible in their faith, to avoid suffering. It was much on their minds. They were about, verse 35 of chapter 10, to throw away their confidence. And he says, don't do that. Instead, you need to learn to live by faith. That's why in verse 39 of chapter 10, he says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have what, what? faith and preserve their souls. In the Old Testament, pardon me, in the original language here, there were no chapter divisions as this epistle was written. So there's no break between chapter 10 and chapter 11 in thought. Chapter 10 rolls up and says, listen, it's going to be tough to follow Jesus, but he's worth it all. Don't give up. Don't lose what you have. Instead, learn to walk in it by faith. And if you Become one of those who has faith. You'll preserve your soul. You'll make it through. And then he says, now faith is. Do you see it? He says, you've got to live by faith. Chapter 10, verse 39. Now I'll teach you what faith is. Now I'll teach you who lived by faith in all the centuries past and used their lives as examples, their lives as lessons. And I'll also teach you what faith is and how to understand this invisible, mysterious thing that's the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. I will reveal all that to you in this chapter. And then you'll know more about how to walk with God. That's the supreme principle that will guide you through it all. Amazing. So now you understand where chapter 11 fits. Now you understand why these great stories of faith have been given. And we're going to learn in this series what they learned. You know we're going to learn it because we need to, just like they did. This ties in with what I said in the introduction. I think that one of the compelling reasons I'm covering this chapter is because their needs and situation seem to match some of the things we're starting to experience in our darkening culture. Don't think that some of the things that are going on in the last few months or that may go on in the months to come are all temporary. They may not be. It's a darkening culture. Romans 1 says it's a descending system. And as men's lostness grows, their love will grow cold. And Christians will face things that may never, may never stop. Think about the comparisons for a minute. Think about these Hebrew Christians back in A.D. 68. Their worship experience had changed. They'd found Jesus. And so they were no longer able to be in the synagogue. And all their traditions had been overturned. And they worshipped in a different way. And they worshipped at risk. And so their worship experience had changed 
Their incomes were now suddenly threatened. Before they came to Christ, they had generations of being in the same profession in the Jewish society. That all got cut off when they trusted Christ. It was sudden. It was unexpected. Their relationships had been fractured. Maybe the family members who didn't agree with their faith in Christ, who weren't speaking to them anymore, or every time they got together for a Jewish holiday, it was a Jewish nightmare. As they fought over the table and, and battled in the living room in front of the big screen and everything else. Their relationships had been strained because of their new faith and their future was suddenly unsure. The trust points that they had lived their whole life with had suddenly begun to be obscured. And what they had always depended on for everyday life, for relational life, for for their future, had really changed. Does that sound anything like what we may be experiencing today? A bit so. Today we are in a changing society, which is undergoing a changing attitude toward biblical faith. And it is not, in my opinion, going to be reversed. I hope for revival, but I don't really necessarily believe one will come. So, so pardon me, we're in a changing society as they were. Our touch points are being moved. We're also in a time of political uncertainty that has suddenly arisen, but I think it's been percolating for some time. Our institutions are being handled and operated in such a way that the freedoms we have been used to seeing are being disregarded. There's a corruption in our system that I, I don't think would be, will be reversed. They were going through tremendous political uncertainty because Nero had ascended to the emperorship. And Nero was insane. And so they faced all of that. We face a future that's unsure just like they did. Relationships lost just like they did. And at the center for both them and us is our faith. At the center of what much is that's coming is our faith. Now these are social things that have been going on for years in our culture. Lay on to that the sudden experience of COVID. And it has changed the touch points in everyday life in this season. Is it, is it permanent? Who could say? How long will it last? Who can say? I just know that it's like a gigantic fog bank has suddenly risen up in the American experience, and now we have to deal with all the fallout from it. Whether you agree it's a significant thing or you agree it's an overblown thing, we all have to agree that it is currently affecting our world. I find a lot of comparisons here. And so... We'll walk into this great chapter together and we'll find that Jesus Christ, just like he was for them, for us will be enough to face anything if we learn to live by faith. So beginning next week, we'll begin to learn from the lives and the lessons. And I'm glad because for us, the highway of life is at least for now changing. A sudden fog almost seems to have landed upon our human experience, or to have suddenly or slowly crept in, rather, upon our cultural experience. So the highway of life has, at least for now, begun to change, but thankfully the pathway of life has not changed. That's why he can say, now, in the midst of all your confusion, in the midst of all you're frightened about, in the midst of all that's changed and changing, in the midst of all that scares you, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. 
You can have assurance in this time. I don't care what you're facing or what we all face together. We, as God's people, can live with an assurance. Don't you want to live that way? You've got to live that way. You're called to live that way. You're gifted to live that way. And that is our inheritance. You can also live with conviction. The conviction of things not seen. Are you afraid you won't be able to stand for your faith in whatever comes? The Bible says, by faith, you'll be able to do so. And in fact, you'll know, you'll, you'll know your faith in deeper measure and in deeper truth the more you go through for God. No, the highway of life can sometimes suddenly be obscured. A sudden fog can roll in. And that's unsettling. Earlier in our ministry, uh, I pastored a church in a little country town, farming town outside of Bakersfield, California, in what's known as the Southern San Joaquin Valley. It's a very unique part of the country. It's really the most fertile part of our country because due to the weather and, and the soil and how they've learned to irrigate, They basically have endless growing seasons all year long in the San Joaquin Valley. You can get a a bunch of cuttings of hay per year compared to what you can get even up here. It is fertile all the time. And And it's irrigated by miles on either side of you all the time, all during the year. doesn't matter winter, spring, summer, fall. And the weather changes a lot. When you get into a situation where you've got water all around you all the time, and you've got weather patterns changing and temperature and inversion coming all the time, you can get something that's very unique called Thule fog. Anybody ever heard of Thule fog? Well, I hope you've never driven in it (laughs) because it's terrifying. I was talking to a guy after first service. He said, I'll tell you, I had to drive through Thule fog to get to Kohlinga, and it was the most terrifying thing I've ever gone through in my life. Thule fog rises suddenly. It It is the thickest fog you can imagine. You cannot see the taillights of a vehicle in front of you on the interstate until you're basically on top of the vehicle. You're riding the bumper. So you live in terror when you're driving on the interstate that somebody is going to go crazy and be driving so fast they'll take you out or that you won't be able to find your place on the highway and you'll take somebody else out or maybe yourself. It is so dense and it comes suddenly. Sudden, dense, and deadly too. There are always multiple car pile-ups on Interstate 99 and I-5 around our town. The biggest one that happened while we were there was 98 cars collided in the Thule fog, and not everybody walked away alive. Now, when we first got there, and we suddenly discovered that we had to drive in the Thule fog, it would come up on us when we were coming home from Bakersfield, coming out to Shafter where we live. It was about a 25-mile trip, and it would come up on you, and it scared us to death. There were times when it took us an hour or two to get home. And often, it was so dense that you kept missing your exit. Because you couldn't see the exit sign. And so, all of a sudden, the exit flashes by, and you see a few little lights, and you're done again. I got all the way to Fresno once trying to get home. It was crazy. I'm just kidding. So we were kind of shaken by this, and so I would tell Tina, don't go to Bakersfield where you can't get home before the sun sets. Until there was somebody at church that says, you don't have to be so afraid of this. We said, why? And she said, haven't you heard about the exit bumps? We said, no. And she says, out here, because of the Thule fog, the highway system builds little bumps on the far right side in the far right strip, or stripe, and every exit 
they, they, they start to put these bumps in about a quarter mile out. And so when you, if you, all you have to do is put your tire, tire on the right yellow line, and that's all you're looking at, which is insane. You're not looking ahead now. You're looking at the right yellow line. But she says, trust me, just do this. Drive the right yellow line, and then you, you'll, you, when, you, when your exit's coming up, you'll, boom, you'll feel a bump. And they space them far apart. Then you'll feel, as you get a little closer, another bump, bump. And as, they, as you get closer, they, they space them a little closer, so it's bump, 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 bump. And by the time it's starting to do some kind of symphony, hopefully, you're on the exit. There were times when I did not know I was on the exit, but I drove by faith on those bumps until I was on the exit. So we had to learn to drive by faith. <laughs> You know, faith is a lot like that. Corey Tenboom, who had to face a lot of things in her life of faith, said that faith is, faith is like radar that sees through the fog. It sees the reality of things at a distance that the human eye cannot see. I think that's so true about living for Christ in difficult times. When a fog bank creeps in over your culture, or a fog bank suddenly descends like a social event like what we're going through with COVID and all the economics and everything else. The highway of life is at least for now somewhat obscured, but the pathway of life is still available. You, 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 you follow the lead of faith. You do it, it's unnatural, it's scary, it's something you've not known to do before, but as you, as you move through the challenges, you and I will discover that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and it's the only way 